Open our Bibles, please, to the book of Psalms. The first Psalm. Six verses. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now then, I think that we'll try to just use this first psalm tonight for our lesson, by way of introduction to all of the psalms. There may be times in our studies in the future that we'll take more than one psalm, maybe two or three. And if it comes down to that tonight, we could take the second one. But basically, we'll want to give you an introduction to the book of Psalms. <clears throat> the book of Psalms was a hymn book of praise and prayer for Israel. And it was often quoted by Jesus, and it was quoted by the apostles, and expresses the needs of every human heart. And this is a preface psalm. You might say the first psalm. Uh, shows us the contents of the entire book. Now, someone might say, well, how is that? Because it shows us the way of the blessed, and it shows us the destruction of sinners. And thus it is found throughout the book, the way of those that walk with God and the destruction of those that do not walk with God. In fact, this first division of this first chapter is divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 3 is the godly man. And verses 4 through 6, the ungodly. And it shows us uh, the difference between the godly and the ungodly. And let's look at it as, as we go into it into detail. And we'll try to give you as much as we can concerning the contents of this first psalm. And we won't try to hurry with it. We'll tr just try to give you everything that we find First of all, notice it says, blessed is the man. We're talking about that man, that particular man, emphatically that man that does these particular things. He's blessed or blessed. And we'll find that that man is, the word blessed actually describes something else. It, the word blessed here is in the plural and it means blessednesses. It's not just one blessing that the man of God has. But it's a multiplied number of blessings. These are blessings multiplied. Oh, the blessednesses, they are without number. Remember Psalm 51, verse 1. Uh, the psalmist said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Now listen. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. The psalmist, uh, David there, repenting of his sin that he had committed, said, God have mercy upon me according to the multitude. You have a multitude of tender mercies. And he says, blot out my transgressions. When I think of God's tender mercies, I think of a gentleman that I used to ride horseback with, hunting up in the mountains in the, in the uh, wintertime. 
Anna rode with him too during the summer time when we'd ride horseback up in the upper canyon and up toward Baldy and various places in the mountains here. And some of you would know his name if I called his name. But anyway, uh, he would always, when we'd come to the, to the river and we'd let our horses drink, you know, most fellows would drive up there, ride up to the river, and they'll let their horses head down and kind of spur them around a little bit and let them get a little water, and then they're gone. Some of them will ride, uh, ride up to the river and they'll let the horse have his full head and drink. But this gentleman would ride up there and he would take the bridle off and the bits out of his mouth and put the bridle around the horse's neck and let him drink that water freely without any bit in his mouth. I always thought that was like tender mercies. That was not only being good to the horse and letting him have his needs and the water he needed to drink, but it was letting him do it, letting the horse enjoy the drinking of that water, having a full head. Well, God is merciful to us in so many ways. And so he says he has tender mercies. And then we find that uh, uh, the blessed man is described. First of all, let's notice that uh, <clears throat> he not only has multiplied blessings, but there's three things that uh, mark uh, uh, this blessedness, his walk his influence, and his attitude. And notice that they're all uh, found out in this uh, first verse. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Sometimes it does us good to really uh, take a passage of Scripture and just dissect it and chew upon it a little bit and let it really mean something to us. Notice this is the negative side. In verse 1, you find the negative side of this blessed man, what he does not do. In verse 2, you have what he does do, his, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So if you look at the first verse, he walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. We find that uh, this blessed man uh, is spoken of in the negative, and many times it's more absolute than the positive. In other words, it does not say, uh, blessed is the man that walks in the counsel of the godly. Because he might walk in the counsel of the godly a while, and he might walk in the counsel of the ungodly another while. But when it says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, you know that he's walking only in the counsel of the godly. And sometimes something stated in the negative makes it more uh, definite and more purposeful than if you state it in the positive way. Uh, just like in uh, speaking about Jesus, our great high priest in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. Well, then what does it mean? It means that we have one who can truly be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. So sometimes it's good to state the negative side. The negative side of this blessed man. Notice there is the ungodly man and his counsel. There is the sinner and his way. And there is the scornful and his seat in this first verse. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. So there's the ungodly man and he has his counsel. And the sinner has his way. And the scornful has his seat or place of authority or teaching. That's what the seat speaks of in the Bible. Uh, when we speak of the seat, uh, we mean to sit in the seat is to teach. 
or to act as instructor and teacher. As in Matthew 23, verse 2, uh, Jesus said, The scribes sit in Moses' chair, Moses' seat. In other words, they're the ones that are teaching you. This psalmist says more to the point of true happiness, blessedness, and blessed is the man in this short psalm than anyone or all the all of the philosophers that are put together. We find that all the philosophers together cannot say as much as uh, the psalmist says here about the blessed man. We find uh, the negative side then. We'll deal with that thought. The negative side of the blessed man. Notice the downward trend of sin. It walketh, standeth, and sitteth. This is a bad trend, isn't it? Walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, standeth in the way of sinners, or sitteth in the seat of the scornful. That's kind of progressive, but it's a downward progress, isn't it? The degradation of these steps, or the degrading steps, and the, the downward progression of sin. Here's a man that goes from what? Bad to worse. He walks with uh, the ungodly. He stands, stops walking, he stand, takes his stand along with sinners, and then finally he sits down in the seat of the scornful. And there's no way but bad for this man that does that. But the godly man does not walk in his way. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. There are two things that are very much uh, important in this verse, and that is his walk and his company. The way a man walks and the way he does not walk is important. And the company he keeps is important. That's why it's better for you to walk with God and walk in God's ways all the way than to walk with the ungodly. It's better for you to keep company with the Christians than with uh, people who are ungodly. And uh, you're influenced by the company that you keep. Everyone has uh, an influence upon another human being by being in uh, company with them one way or another. And so you better make sure you stay with the right people. You've heard me quote, I think, one time about the uh, alcoholic, the drunkard. Remember the story? Might be good to apply it here. Uh, It says it was in the late November, as well as I remember, I was walking down the street in modern pride when my heart began to flutter and I lay down in the gutter and a pig came up and lay down by my side. And as I lay there in the gutter with my heart all in a flutter, a lady passing by was heard to say, You can tell the man that boozes by the company he chooses. And the pig got up and slowly walked away. So the company you keep makes a great deal of difference, doesn't it? pig wouldn't have any company with that guy, would he? But, you know, the people we walk with and the people we communicate with, the people that we uh, keep company with, will have a great deal of influence upon how we live ourselves. That's why it's good to get around good people and to live around good people. And if you live around people that are of the world, you're going to be worldly. If you live around the people that are wicked, you're going to fall into some of their wicked patterns, habits, or words, or deeds. And it's just good to keep company with God's people. And I'm glad that we're in the company we are tonight because I feel like this is the best place in the world that you could be, and I know it is for me. So we're talking about the negative side. His walk 
In his walk, he turns a deaf ear to the ungodly. Think about what he does. In Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 10, let me read a verse or two of Scripture. It says, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. Do not consent to sinners. If they say, Come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our houses with spoil. In one place, they wanted to all have one purse. You know, be careful of that because sometimes the one that wants to have all have one purse, he wants to have one purse, but he wants you to put all the money in it so he can take it out. So don't, don't go for this having one purse. And then it goes on to say, cast in thy lot. They, they say, well, by the way, that's the next verse. I thought it was another passage of Scripture, but look at verse uh, 14. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. It says, my son, walk not thou in the way with them. He says, walk not in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. And it goes on to tell and describe what they will do and and the mischief that will be caused. So we need to walk with people who are godly instead of walking with the ungodly. Turn a deaf ear to the ungodly. That's the blessed thing to do. And then his influence. We think of the influence of the godly man. It says he standeth nor standeth in the way of sinners. You know, this can be taken two ways. First of all, he doesn't consort with sinners. But then he would not either be a stumbling block to them turning to the right way either. You know, the Bible says that we should not be a stumbling block in the ways of others. In the book of Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 14, it says, Thou shalt not uh, curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear the Lord thy God. Fear thy God, I am the Lord. So, we're not to put a stumbling block before others. And though we're not to walk with them and not to uh, stand in the way of sinners, we're not to stand in their way as far as having them to uh, being a stumbling block to them as well. So when it says, nor standeth in the way of sinners, the best way you can, can be before sinners is to be an influence to them instead of a stumbling block to them. And by being an influence to them, you cannot... Stand with them in their disbelief and in their ridicule and in their scoffing. Sometimes we give uh, the ungodly the lead way by just consorting and or by agreeing or by not stating where we stand in relation to what they stand for. And we permit them to stand for evil and thus kind of put our endorsement upon it by not saying anything. We should speak up and we should certainly live to where that they can see the difference. And then it says, we, we think of his attitude. His attitude. Nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. That means the attitude of the godly man. He's not a critic of the Lord or his people. This should be the attitude of God's children. So notice the uh, steps again. At first we merely walk. And next, habitual to evil, and then become teachers also. And that's the downward steps. By walking in the counsel of the ungodly, standeth in the way of sinners, and sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Let's look at the positive side in verse 2. 
But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now, what about the law of the Lord? He's not under the law as to its curse and condemnation, but as to its delight. Uh, a godly man does not mind God condemning sin because he's going to take uh, recognition and uh, take heed to that warning as well. And he's going to find delight in the law of the Lord. He takes delight in it. It becomes his daily bread. The Bible should be the food uh, for the soul of every child of God. The Word of God should feed our souls. Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119 and verse... Uh, let's see what verse it is. Verse uh, 9 says, Wherewith shall a young man uh, cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Uh, 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. Uh, verse 25 says, My soul cleaveth unto the dust, quicken thou me according to thy word. Verse 50 says, This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. Verse 38 says, Establish thy word unto thy servant. Verse 42 says, So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth, for I trust in thy word. Verse 43 says, And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. You could just go on and on. In verse 81 it says, My soul fainteth for thy salvation, but I hope in thy word. Verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. 130 says, The entrance of thy words giveth light. Uh, 133 says, Order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over, over me. What does he say? Order my steps in thy word. Every step I take, I want it to be ordered, divinely ordered. And I want it to be God's word that gives us that order. See, a lot of people, they trust in everything but the, the Word of God for guidance. We talked about those philosophers that have not as much answer as this psalmist gives us. And they fill the church with opinions of their philosophy, traditions of men, and with the counsels of their own brain, and all the while setting aside the Word of God, by which alone the soul is fed and lives and is preserved. That's a quotation from Martin Luther. And so we find that there are so many people that trust in everything but the Word of God. Remember we said this morning in our Sunday school that they teach for doctrines the commandments of men as did the scribes and Pharisees. And they transgress therefore the Word of God and do not take it as a final rule of, of faith and practice. Then we find in verse uh, 2 again, he applies the word to his heart and life. He not only takes delight in the word of God, but he says meditate on it day and night. He meditates in God's word. So it's something to hear God's word, and it's another thing to meditate in God's word. We should have the word of God upon our minds as we get up and throughout the day and in the evening and when we go to bed. And we should go to sleep with the thoughts of God's word upon our mind. Someone says, that's too much of the word for me. It's not enough. It should be constantly upon our mind. We learn to live by it. We learn to meditate in it. We learn, learn to take it and digest it. 
Sometimes we need to meditate by looking again into it. Think of Elijah's servant as he was told to go out, you know. And he says, I want you to go out and see if there's a cloud coming up, a storm coming up, and if there's any rain coming. So Elijah's servant, he went out and he says, came back and says, there's not a cloud in the sky. Elijah says, go do it again. Still didn't see anything. He said, do it seven times. And the seventh time he went, he says, there's a little cloud the size of a man's hand. Sometimes we just need to take a more discreet look. Sometimes we need a more uh, intense search of God's Word as well as he did the cloud and looking for the rain to come. And then old Elijah told him, he says, listen, he says, you go and warn Ahab because he says, there's a flood coming. <laughs> little cloud the size of a man's hand. He says, there's a, the storm's coming. So the Word of God needs to be meditated upon and within our heart and life. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he is rooted and grounded in this word of God. We're to be rooted and grounded in the faith and in God's word. Let me read for you in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter, let's see, chapter 3, verse 17 says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love. So we're rooted and grounded in love. And then Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter one. Let's see if I can find that. And verse uh, 23 says, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, uh, I, Paul, am made a minister. So he says, be rooted and grounded. He says, be grounded and settled. And God's people that study the Word will be grounded in the Word of God. We find the reward of the blessed man in verse 3, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. What is the reward of the blessed man? First of all, he will be a fruitful Christian, and he will be a steadfast Christian, and he will be blessed in his undertakings. It says he will be like a tree planted, not like a wild tree that just grows out here anywhere, but like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Not just one river, but the rivers. It's like the uh, a person that would plant the the trees, or the, say the orchard, or the trees that were planted on purpose for bearing fruit, and have a lot of little rivers, or we might call it irrigation ditches, running on each and every side of them to make sure that every one of them got plenty of water. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which bringeth forth his fruit in his season. We think of the planted tree, <clears throat> we think of the fact that... Uh, this is a tree that is owned, and it's a tree that is cultivated as well as planted. If, if a man plants a tree, he plants it because it's his own, and he plants it because he wants uh, to cultivate it and make sure that it brings forth fruit. And we're the planting of the Lord. God has planted you and I as trees to bear fruit in his service. And we said he would be a steadfast Christian. Notice, uh, it says... He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth, in his, forth his fruit in his season. 
They're steadfast fruit bearing. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, let me read this for you. It says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So that's steadfast, unmovable. And a Christian should be steadfast. You know, the best thing that you can show people is a steadfastness, a consistency, a determination in your Christian life. If they see you're hot today and cold tomorrow, in the church one week and out of the church for uh, six months, you're not going to have any influence upon anybody. We have a lot of Christians that are that, in that condition in Rio Dosa. A few of them members of this church, I'm sorry to say. But the, the thing about it is you'll never be an influence to, to anyone round about you if you're not steadfast in what you believe and how you live what you believe. And so you have to live it as well as preach it. I could stand up here and preach all day to you, and if I didn't try to live what the Bible says, you wouldn't have a bit of confidence in what I say. You probably wouldn't even listen to me in the first place. And I do want you to listen, and I do want you to have confidence in it, but I want you to have your confidence in the Word of God, because after all, I'm just a man too, but I still want to try to live a consistent uh, life according to God's Word, and I think each of us should have that desire. So he will be blessed... Also in his undertakings, notice, whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. In what you do, you'll prosper. Our worst things are often our best things. Sometimes we think when everything's going wrong and everything happens that uh, seems to be negative or a trial or circumstantial uh, sufferings in our lives, that, that it's all the... You know, nothing's good about it. But sometimes there's a blessing concealed in the righteous man's crosses and losses and sorrows more than he may realize. There's a blessing there for us. It's not always outward prosperity that we're looking for, but soul prosperity, which we long for. But much of the time they go kind of hand in hand. Remember when John said, let's look, I'll give you a verse of scripture in the book of Second John. Second John, <coughs> one of his epistles, close right before Revelation. Second John says, I mean Third John, I beg your pardon. He says in verse two, "Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth." Well, this is a little twist upon what a lot of holiness people put to it. You know what uh, John was saying? He says, I wish that your physical health could be as good as your spiritual health. Now then, if that's the case in many cases, he says, I want you to prosper even as thy and be in health even as thy soul prospers. I'm afraid if we depended upon that soul prosperity to measure up and, and our health to correspond to it, we might be the most sickly people in the world if we were not, if we were not soul prospering, right? So John is preferring that they prosper in soul first of all, and then that their health would be well too, good. You know, they'd have good health. As I said back in the Psalms, notice it says, And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. 
Isn't it a wonderful thing when you can just see? I'm almost afraid sometimes to get up. God has been so good to me. I get up, uh, you know, and a blessing just flows to me. And I don't know where it comes from. It just all of a sudden happens. Preacher, I'm not that fortunate. Well, I, you know, I just take what God gives me. And I'm thankful for it. And I could give you a lot of examples. Won't take time to do that. But it seems like lately that on one hand and another, God has just blessed me and prospered me and helped me in so many ways. It's almost, uh, it's almost frightening. I just think, well, what's he going to do next? And how much more can he do? And sometimes if we just accept the blessings of God, he's just going to, he'll say, well, I'll just show you what I can do. And he does show us. And I'm really thankful that, that I, I trust him with prospering my way in my life. Uh, we f- find now the latter part, the doom of the ungodly. Notice what it says in verse uh, 4. The ungodly are not so. You know, in the original it says, not so, the ungodly not so. I'd hate to have a double negative put toward me, wouldn't you? Not so, the ungodly not so. In other words, they're not like the godly. And they're absolutely not like the godly. Sometimes, now we know that in the English language, a double negative is uh, not very proper. It's not good English. But in the, in the Greek, and especially in the Greek, but here in the Hebrew as well, when it says not so, the ungodly not so, it's for emphasis to show that the ungodly have no chance in the world of being like what was just described as the godly. They have not a, a, a one chance in a million of being like the godly are described. It says the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. The chaff is driven away by the wind. Their character is described by the chaff. It's worthless, it's dead. It's unserviceable. It's without substance. It's easily carried away. Think of the chaff. So, when the chaff is with the wheat, let me give you something here. It might be of interest. It has a particular blessing because it's attached to the wheat. But when it's separated from the wheat and the grain, it becomes worthless. Kind of use that as an example of in our society. We talk about the wicked and the ungodly in our nation. They're only blessed because there's a godly element in the nation. They're blessed along with the wheat. But when when the wheat is gone and separated completely from the wheat, they'd be blown away. They won't have any value whatsoever. It's kind of like, uh, let me see how I can uh, give an example of it. Uh, Jesus speaks of tares among the wheat, doesn't he? And he says, when the time comes, when the separation comes, he's going to gather the wheat into his garner, and the tares he's going to burn in the fire, right? So when the and it's all uh, the chaff is a part of the wheat itself. Not it's not just tares among the wheat, but the the chaff is part of the wheat itself. You know, some of you've seen, and I'm probably most everyone here is familiar, or at least if not, uh, somewhat mindful of what a combine does. When you go out and thresh the wheat in the field and the, the grain comes in and goes up into the, into the hopper and into the bin up there, and then we find that uh, the chaff is blown out. They have blowers out there. blows it out, scatters it all over the field. And it's not worth a thing except to go right back into the ground. 
And the ungodly are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. And it says, notice here, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. We're talking about the ungodly and their doom. They shall be driven away, and also they shall not stand judgment sinners in the congregation of the righteous they will not be along with the righteous they're going to be separated from the righteous and they're not going to be able to stand in the day of judgment find that uh, in the book of revelation there's something said about the ungodly not being able to stand before god's just judgment and wrath there are a couple of places but one of them is revelation chapter 6 <clears throat> verse uh 14 begins, it says, The heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! Instead of praying to God, they were praying to the mountains. That was their custom before, and it hadn't changed, had it? Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Want to know who's able to stand? Look in chapter 7, verse 9. After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. The only ones that can stand before God are those that are clothed in white robes. And that's the symbolical of the righteousness of the saints. God's people are the only ones that can stand in the day of God's judgment and wrath. Because our, uh, the judgment that would come upon us because of our sins has fallen upon Jesus. And He bore all the brunt of the judgment that was due unto us when He died on the cross. Well, quickly back to our thought in the book of Psalms. It says, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now we find there are two ways spoken of in verse 6. The way of the righteous and the way of the ungodly. It says in verse 6, for the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. What does it mean, the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous? It means that God is constantly looking upon the way of the righteous. God is constantly beholding everything that God's people do. Job says, He knoweth the way that I take. Sometimes we as Christians fail to realize that He knows the way of the righteous. That God is looking down upon us. The Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the ways of man, beholding the, the evil and the good. God sees us. That makes a difference as to how we ought to live, doesn't it? We hide things from one another. We may hide it from a family, friends, future. It's so amused at people. Brother Randy and I walk in somewhere and, you know, they'll hush their cussing right away and do a few things. And if they do that, they go over in the corner to do it somewhere. But, you know, <clears throat> God hears it all the time. Like I told you about a lady down there in Mount Pleasant one time, I was walking down the street and one of the, she'd been out of church for ages and I kind of realized why when I saw what happened and she had her hands behind her back standing in front of the theater and I walked by and said, hello, Mrs. So-and-so, called her name 
And she stood there and the smoke was just a rolling up and I thought she was going to catch on fire. Finally, she took it about to burn her hand. She took it out and said, Brother Joyce, I didn't want you to see me smoking. Well, I thought she was going to burn up anyway. And so I said, well, why? I said, uh, you know, I said, the Lord sees you all the time. Why hide something from one another when God sees it all? See, the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. And you can't hide anything from God. And by the way, it's with Him that we have to do, not with a preacher, not with a Christian brother or sister. Look in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. It says, well, I'll just quote it for you. It says in verse 12 that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now listen, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And then verse 13 says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And we have to do with God. People like to ignore that and think they don't have. But we have to do with God. And we're going to answer to God. And he knoweth the way of the righteous. And the way of the righteous meets with God's divine approval. Uh, our time is getting away, but I'd like to give you this. In Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 7, it says this. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. A man's ways please the Lord. Uh, Hebrews 11 tells us, I believe it's verse 5, uh, that, or verse 6, is it, that says, Without faith it's impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We're to walk in the ways that God has planned for us, and then we'll walk in the right ways. Jeremiah 6, verse 16 says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Well, you know, God told Israel the way to walk. He tells us the way to walk. But some among us are like those of Israel. They said, We will not walk therein. So you can choose to walk in God's way. And when you do... It is the way that's a narrow way. Jesus said, straight and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now then, the last part of this verse, look at it again. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Not only shall the ungodly perish, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The way of the ungodly is a hard way. The way of the ungodly, the Bible tells us that... it. Uh, he that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Proverbs chapter 13, listen, let me give you this. And verse 15 says this, Good understanding giveth, giveth favor, but the way of the transgressor is hard. You ever heard, have people to come to you? I have people, Brother Randy does all the time, come to you. Oh, it's so hard, Brother Joyce, Brother Randy. This happens to me and this happens to me. It's just so hard. Well, listen, God may be trying to tell you something. It says the way of the transgressor is hard. If you had listened to him, maybe you would find the rest that he has for you. And it is a way that will certainly end in 